And our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Kings, 1 Kings, chapter 19. As we continue our exposition throughout the book of Kings, especially focusing on the lives of Elijah and now Elisha as well. So 1 Kings, chapter 19. Thus says the word of God. And Ahab told Jezebel all Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a juniper tree, behold, them an angel touched him, and saying to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake bacon on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. And he did eat and drink, and laid him down again. And the angel of the Lord came again the second time, and touched him, and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. And he arose, and did eat and drink, and went in the strength of that meat forty days and forty nights unto Horeb, the mount of God. And he came thither unto a cave, and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and say unto him, What doest thou here? Elijah. And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thy altars, and has slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go forth, and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so, when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out, and he stood in the entering of the cave. And behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And he said, 
I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and has slain thy prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said unto him, Go, return on, thou, and on thy way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when thou comest, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shall thy, thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Ebel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And it shall come to pass that him that escapeth the sword of Hazel shall Jehu slay. And him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath, hath not kissed him. So he departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him, and took a yoke of oxen, and slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose, and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. This far the reading of God's most infallible word. And this morning, our text comes from the book of Kings, chapter 19. And we'll see how God encourages his servant. But before we begin, let's ask once again for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Let's pray. O oh Lord, our most gracious God, whose mercy endures forever. O oh Lord, we come into thy presence now, and we pray, Lord, that thy word would be near unto us, as it was for thy servant Elijah, as thy word was brought in due season for Elijah, Lord. Speak to us. Bring, Lord, a fitting word for us this morning. And, O oh Lord, make us faithful servants unto thy house, and use us, Lord, as thou hast used Elijah and many other servants. Use us, Lord, for the building up of thy kingdom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a saying that goes, Never meet your heroes. You're always going to be disappointed. Well, sometimes when you find out that your heroes are also humans, you can become a little disappointed. It's easy to become disappointed when you realize that they have the same flaws and limitations that you do. 
But his scripture didn't leave anything out. The good and the bad, the strengths and the weakness, it's all laid out open for us in scripture. Is this what is happening in this passage? Is this what we have before us today? Well, before we answer this question, let's remember what we have and what was the context of our passage. As we know, Israel was divided. And it was a nation under paganism, widespread all over the nation. Israel had forgotten the covenant of the Lord, and they were following false gods. And now Ahab, a wicked king, was sitting upon the throne. And with the wicked Jezebel at his side, she was ruling alongside him. And it is in this scenario that God raises the mighty prophet Elijah. A bold prophet that we could almost dare to call him a super prophet to the Lord. To reprove all the wickedness that was in that nation. To call out sin when sin was so common around him. And at Mount Carmel, we saw in the last passage, a clash between these two worldviews. We saw a clash between the false gods, between Baal and between the one true God and his follower. We saw how fire came down from heaven. We saw the mighty power of the one true God displayed before the eyes of all the nation. As God reminded his people of his covenant at that mountain. But even after that, even after the people witnessed so great power from heaven, even after fire and water came down from the Lord, even after God accepted the offering presented in that mountain, the people did not turn to God. Once again, our prophet is met with unbelief and rejection. Once again, as if Elijah was back into the beginning. Here in our passage, we meet our super prophet Elijah at a low point of his ministry. There's a big contrast between the Elijah of Mount Carmel, who was bold before the nation, and now the Elijah of Mount Horeb, who is meek and lowly. The Elijah that both boldly accused paganism and ask for fire from heaven. It's, it is now asking to die before the Lord. The same prophet, but in two opposite moments. Why is he so discouraged? And what will the Lord tell his prophet at this point? That's what we'll meditate today. God doesn't abandon his servant. But he encourages his servant even through their afflictions. And to meditate on this text, we'll divide our text into three points. First, God's caring, verses 1 to 8. Second, God's commissioning, verses 9 to, 12, to 18. And third, God's calling, verses 19 to 21. So first, let's consider God's caring. Despite all that happened... The people didn't turn to the Lord. 
especially not the rulers of Israel, not Ahab and Jezebel. They were still very much in the same point that they were before. Our text begins with Ahab attributing all that has happened to the acts of one man. Verse 1. And Ahab told Jezebel all, all that Elijah had done. And how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. It was not because his sins. It was because of Elijah. And it was not by the hand of the Lord who brought fire from heaven. No, it was by the hand of Elijah. Despite all that happened, Ahab still thought that it was the fault of one man, Elijah. Ahab didn't learn anything from what happened at Mount Carmel. And so was Jezebel in complete denial of any sign of the one true God of Israel. And then there are three mistakes that Jezebel makes in verse 2. First, thinking that the gods took care of her life. Let the gods do to me as they please. Understood. She's making a vow. Let the gods do to me as they please. She still thought that her life was in the hand of the gods. Not the one true God, but the gods. Second, thinking that she could decree judgment against the judgment decreed by the Lord. If I make not thy life as the life of one of them. She thought she had the authority to decree judgment over a judgment that was decreed by the Lord. Just because she was the queen, she thought she had the right to counteract the decree of the one and only king. And third, thinking that she could decree the time that things happen. If I make not thy life as the life of one of them, by tomorrow, about this time. So not only she was bold enough to make a prediction of what would happen, she also made a prediction of when that would happen. So she even thought that the hands, that the time was in her hands. Everything that came out of Jezebel's mouth was wrong. And only proved her unbelief that she was still unrepented. Both Ahab and Jezebel were shifting the blame here. They were shifting the blame. Something is wrong, yes, but it's not us. So it must be Elijah. It must be this guy who came out of nowhere to accuse our sins. How dare him? They're really interested in shooting the messenger and not listening to the message. And to some extent, we can relate to that. It is easier to shift the blame than to actually change. It's much easier to shoot the messenger than to recognize that all things come from the hand of the Lord. And he is speaking to us even through our afflictions. So easy to shift blame. To blame something else and someone else. And not our sins and what we have done. And Elijah was so discouraged by what he saw. That he flees out of Israel. Verse 3. There is a common misconception here in, in this verse and in about, Elijah's, uh, running, about Elijah running away. Elijah was not fleeing because he was afraid to die. 
In fact, he was going to ask to die. He wanted to die. So he was not afraid for his life. It would be better for him to die. He was running after what he saw. That all that happened in Carmel was not going to change Israel. And he knew that to die in Jezebel's hand was to give her the victory. He knew that to die in the hands of these pagans would be to give them the victory. He didn't mind dying, but he would not give the credit for his death to Jezebel and Baal. Elijah was facing the same fallacy of our culture nowadays. That if they just had enough evidence, if they just would see the evidence, they would finally believe. Well, Elijah is frustrated because they saw one of the most extraordinary actions of God in all scriptures. They saw fire coming down from heaven, consuming the sacrifice. But even so, they did not believe. Unless God shines light in the human heart, it doesn't matter how much fire blazes at Mount Carmel, they will not believe. They will not repent. Jesus said in John 3, 19, This is the the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. It's not that they didn't see the evidence, it's that they love darkness. They chose darkness, they preferred darkness, they loved, they fell in love with darkness. So it doesn't matter the amount of evidence unless God shines in their hearts. They will not. They cannot repent. This is a lesson for us in mission and evangelism as well. That no amount of evidence can convince someone apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not by our Eloquence that we can convince someone. It's not by our gifts or by how compelling we are that we can convince someone. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone. It is a work of God. And I'll tell you, if you have any heart for mission or evangelism, perhaps you have felt the same way that Elijah felt. Either you felt the despair over your own life, Or you felt that there is no hope. You felt the the despair that, that Elijah felt. Lord, it's irreversible. There is no hope for this people, Lord. I have cried out, I have proclaimed thy word, but it's irreversible. There's no hope, Lord. So great discouragement. We should control our expectations in that sense. So we don't fall into the same discouragement that even Elijah felt. To think that if they could see what we see, the same evidence that we see, they would believe. It's God's sovereignty and His sovereignty alone. It is this feeling that that leads Elijah to run away. Elijah fled from death to ask for death. Verse 4. Enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, 
Elijah knew that it was God who ruled over his life, that his life was in the hands of the Lord, and he had the right to take it away if he wanted. So now he asks God to end his life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah thought that his ministry, that his calling was completely ineffective. That his calling to call the people back to the covenant was completely ineffective. Just as the prophet fathers before him were. He thought his ministry was a failure. Elijah Elijah saw himself as insufficient. He says in verse 10. I, even I only, am left. He delved into deep, deep despair. But even in despair, Elijah pours himself out before the Lord. It is here at the lowest point of his ministry that we start seeing God caring and providing for his servant. Not only for Elijah, but often for us as well, for our own lives. An angel approaches Elijah and says, verse 5, Arise. And eat. And even a second time, verse 7 Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for thee. At first glance, it appears that the angel is not answering Elijah, is not answering what Elijah was asking, what his complaint was. But the Lord knew exactly what Elijah needed at that moment. The Lord knew exactly the answer and the provision that Elijah needed at that moment. D.A. Carson says, Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. Not pray all night, but sleep. I'm certainly not denying that there, there may be a place for praying all night. I'm merely insisting that in the normal course of things, a spiritual discipline obligates you Get the sleep your body need. That's exactly what Elijah needed at that time. The Lord knew very well that the godliest thing Elijah could do at that moment was to eat and rest. Was to rest at that point. Not to pray all night, but to rest. He would hear the message of the Lord in due time. But at that time, Elijah had to rest. Simply eat and sleep. Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of all time. He stands alongside of Moses as one of the greatest prophets who operated great things in the land. But even him, almost a hero, a superhero of faith, needed rest. And sometimes the holiest thing you and I can do it is to slow down and rest. It's a simple thing, but sometimes it's the greatest thing we can do. And Elijah obeys. He rests, and he walks towards Mount Horeb, the Mount of God. Elijah is not running away. He's not running away from his calling and from his duty. That he is being taken to a specific place. A place that represents God's covenant with His people. That name should ring a bell in the ears of the people immediately. 
You need to pay attention to this. Elijah's withdrawal from Israel is a sign of judgment. Since nothing has changed in the nation, the Lord is removing his mouthpiece from their midst. He's removing his word by him removing his prophet from their midst. That's a sign of judgment. The Lord is removing his word from their midst. Horeb is also known as Mount Sinai, where God spoke to Moses in Exodus 33:16 to 23. The very place where, where Moses saw the glory of God and heard him, where God spoke to him. To put in perspective here the distances, Beersheba was roughly a hundred miles south of Jezreel, where Jezebel was. So Elijah walked a hundred miles from Jezreel to Beersheba. Then the angel sends him to walk forty days around 200 miles south of Beersheba and to Horeb. That's roughly going from New Jersey to Pittsburgh. So Elijah was not simply trying to hide from Jezebel. He could have found a much closer place to hide. But he was going and he was being led to a specific place for a specific purpose. Elijah was going there by the divine guidance, as verse 7 shows us. God had a message for Moses at that place. And God had a message for Elijah there as well. God was calling him there to remember him of something. Notice how even before the Lord answers Elijah, he's already caring for him. Note that one of Jezebel's sentence has already fallen to the ground. As Elijah walked 40 days and 40 nights to get there, the first sentence that Jezebel pronounced has already fallen short. He didn't die on the next day. In fact, he walked 40 days and 40 nights. Ironically, Jezebel wanted him to die. Elijah wanted to die himself. But God had different plans. In fact, God had very different plans for Elijah. It's both God's time and God's plan. God was caring for Elijah he was providing for Elijah all the time. God feeds Elijah with ravens, as we saw. God multiplies the widow's oil and provides for Elijah through the widow's life. God tells his angel to feed Elijah. And now God makes Elijah walk 40 days without needing any food. You see, it's not about the provision. God can bring the provision from anywhere. It's about the God of the provision who cares and who provides for his people. Even in dreadful situations, God decrees, preserve his people throughout all times. Although the prophets of Jezebel ate at her table, although her false prophets were enjoying a banquet at her table, Elijah was being fed by an angel from God. What a great provision God had for his servant. And in the desert, the Lord was remembering Elijah of his promises. You see, for 40 days he walked. For 40 years, Israel was in the wilderness. wilderness. So God was remembering Elijah of his promises. 
I am the God of Israel, and I will provide for my people all times. The same hand that purifies in fire, in the melting pot of Zarepha, as we saw, is the hand that cares and provides. Everyone will pass through fire. This is not a promise that we will be spared of the fire, but that even through the fire, God provides and cares for his servants. It's not too late. It's not too late to look for the nearest tree and cry out unto the Lord and ask for his provisions and ask for an answer from the Lord. For if the Lord clothes the ladies of the field with glory, how much more he does for us, to whom he gave his only begotten son to die in our place. He provides, he cares for his people. So find the nearest tree, the nearest place, and cry for him. For he answers. But not only God cares for his servant, he also has a message for him. God's commissioning. Second point, God's commissioning. When someone is commissioned to do something, that person is chosen to carry the message and authority of the one sending him, of the one sending the message, of the one commissioning. In this case, God is commissioning Elijah, is entrusting to the prophet a very important message, a message that will involve both judgment and hope. But at first... It doesn't appear that the Lord is commissioning Elijah. Two times the Lord asks Elijah, What doest thou here, Elijah? Verse 9 and verse 13. Why is the Lord even asking this? I mean, it was the Lord who sent him there, who made him walk for 40 days. And now the Lord is asking, What doest thou here, Elijah? What is, why is the Lord even asking this? Elijah cries before the Lord that he's alone and that despite all that happened, the people didn't turn to God. Verse 10 says, The children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. You see, Elijah is not there to vent. Elijah is not there because he needs a shoulder to cry. No, he's there to present a very serious accusation before the Lord. Elijah is standing at Mount Sinai just as Moses, as a representative for the people. But Moses stood, if you remember the passage in Exodus, as a defense attorney. He stood between God and the people as a defense attorney. But Elijah stood there, there as a prosecutor. There is a cry for justice and judgment. Elijah is not crying over his ministry. Oh, poor me. No. He's standing there as a prosecutor. He's not afraid that he's alone or that he's about to die. He's presenting a lawsuit against Israel. Because they broke the covenant. Elijah is in despair. I think it's fair to say that here. He is in despair, in deeply and profound despair. That is true, but not for his life, but for Israel. He thinks the situation is irreversible. I ask you, when was the last time 
that you stood before the Lord with the same zeal and with the same passion for his church as Elijah was? Have you ever stand before the Lord with the same zeal, with the same concern for the welfare of the church as Elijah was? With the same passion and and concern for infidelity in the church. I think it's fair to say that Elijah is depressed here. In profound despair, distress. But he is in this situation over God's interests. Not his. It's not there out of concern for his life, but out of concern for God's church and God's people. Out of disappointment for God's sake, for the situation of his church. And what do we get disappointed about? What are the things that we get disappointed about? Do we ever get disappointed about the situation of God's church? About how God's people have forsaken his covenant, broken his laws, turned to false gods, mixed the pure worshiping of God with false things. Have we ever been concerned with God's holiness and with the holiness of his church? As Elijah was. Perhaps if we were in Elijah's shoes, we would have get, get disappointed with much different things. For all the wrong things, all the wrong reasons. I mean, we get disappointed over silly reasons and our lives are not even in danger. How much more if our lives were at stake? How concerned are we with the state of God's church, with the faithfulness of His people, with our faithfulness? It's easy to get upset over our own interests, over the things that affect our lives and our comforts. But how upset are we over our own walk of faithfulness before the Lord and of the walk of His church? A servant of God reveals his heart when despite his interests, he is concerned with the church of God. Things might be going bad for him, but if the church is going well, then he is happy. And the opposite is also true. He might be living the best moment of his life, but if his church is not going well, he's disappointed. So back to God's question. What doest thou here, Elijah? Why is the Lord asking this? I don't think the Lord is rebuking Elijah here for being there. I think this is an invitation to his presence. What brings you here? To this place of covenant renewal, Elijah. What brings you here? Where I have brought you. God is welcoming Elijah to pour out his heart before his presence in a solemn moment. Come, Elijah. Present your case before me. Pour out your heart before me and present your case. Three brief reasons why I think this is an invitation and not a rebuke. First, the Lord guided him there, as we saw. It was not Elijah's idea to go to this place. It was God who guided him there. 
Second, Elijah's petition to the Lord is not about himself, but about the situation of Israel. And he is upset for God's cause. Verse 14. And third, the Lord does not rebuke Elijah for being in despair or having lack of confidence, which Elijah didn't. But the Lord actually agrees with Elijah and responds to his request. So I think the Lord is not rebuking him for coming there, but it's welcoming him to present his case, to pour out his heart in the right place before the Lord, before the God of the covenant. Not to vent with somebody else, but to bring his case before the God of the church. The Lord doesn't respond to Elijah in a harsh way, but in a calm and meek way. You see, to Moses, God spoke with fire and thunder, earthquake. But with Elijah, God spoke in the same place through a still, small voice. Verse 12, like a whisper. God knew what Elijah needed. And he wasn't going to crush Elijah at that place. He knew very well what Elijah needed and how he needed that answer. So through a still and small voice, God answers him. And what exactly is the Lord's response? The Lord answers with a message of judgment upon Israel, but not without hope. Elijah receives the mission of anointing two kings, Hazel to be king over Syria, and Jehu to be king over Israel, verse 15 and 16. Hazel would bring, would bring judgment over Israel, and Jehu would bring judgment over the house of Ahab and Jezebel. Once again, ironic that Elijah goes up the mountain with a sentence from Jezebel, and now he will go down the mountain with a sentence for Jezebel. God has provided and he has given a strong warning, a strong message of judgment. Judgment is coming upon the people and upon those who have thought false things. But Elijah also would anoint a prophet, Elisha, verse 16. Also as a sword of judgment, verse 17. And all these things will be fulfilled in the days of Elisha. Elijah would not live to see the fulfillment of these promises. He received the promises, but the fulfillment of these promises would be beyond his days. Once again, the Lord had different plans for Elijah. And we'll see more of how different these plans were in later chapters. The fact that is that through these men, God would deal with the sins of Israel but he would not crush his people. Yes, he would be bring a strong judgment over the house of Israel, but he would not crush them. In wrath, God would remember mercy. He would remember his covenant and his people, and he would preserve a remnant. That's why we read in verse 18, Yet I have left me 
7,000 in Israel. All the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. God preserves his remnant. God is telling Elijah, Yes, Elijah, I will deal with this unfaithfulness, and I will bring a sword of judgment over Israel, over my people, my church. But I will preserve a remnant. I will preserve a remnant. Even through affliction, I will preserve a faithful remnant. In Exodus, Moses intercedes for restoration of the covenant. And in Kings, Elijah would come there to hear a message of judgment over Israel, but also involving this covenantal restoration. You see, that was a place that God would show His covenant and His promises and see, I will not forget. I'm not going to forget the people that I have redeemed. The same God who made the covenant would now restore the covenant and restore His people to Him, to Himself. God didn't abandon His people before in Exodus. And He would not abandon them now. God has promised that He will preserve a faithful remnant. That He will build His church. Doesn't matter the Jezebels of our days. Doesn't matter the rulers of our times. He will preserve. Doesn't matter the gates of hell that might stand in the way of the church. God will preserve His church to the end. If we have the right understanding of who our God is and what He has promised to do, we have no reason to fear the rulers of our times. Yes, they might say whatever they want, whatever they promise they want to make, to destroy the church, to stand against the church, to attack the church, and they will do. His church will prevail to the end. He has promised to do this. He has not forsaken his people before, and he will not do it now. His church will persevere to the end. Notice that by this answer, the Lord is agreeing with Elijah's accusation. You're right, Elijah. Your charges against Israel are right. They are valid. In fact, I'm going to use you to prepare the instruments of judgment over Israel. show them grace as well. I will show grace to my people, Elijah, undeserving grace, and I will restore them once again. Through a still and small voice, God brought a message of severe judgment, but also a message of hope. There's no contradiction between God's judgment and God's grace. The same God that is a just God is a God of love and cares and provides for His people. No contradiction between His attributes. There are times that we might expect to hear fire, thunder, and earthquake coming from the Lord. 
And to our surprise, the Lord actually answers with a whisper, still in a small voice. So easy to miss. I still in a small voice. God might answer in many ways, but He always speaks through His Word. He always speaks to us through His Word. And our call is to hear. Whatever the content of that Word is, whatever the means, whatever the way that He brings His Word, our call is to hear. He's answering. He's answering us. We might be expecting God to answer in a certain way, and then because He answers another way, we simply don't hear Him. We miss. But He's answering. We think that He's not answering at all, because He might be answering in a still and small voice. Same God who calls us and cares for us, answer our cries, is a God who commissions and recommissions us As many times as we need. As many times as we cry for him. Under the juniper tree. He recommissions us. But not only God cares and provides for Elijah in the desert. And answers him. And commissions him in the mountain. He encourages Elijah. Through his calling. God's calling. The final way that God provides encouragement for Elijah. Is through calling, through the calling of Elisha. See, the name Elijah means the Lord is God, Yahweh is God. And the name Elisha means God is salvation. So the two are a natural complement to each other. And there are two things to learn from God's calling of Elisha. First, the servant's call, and second, the servant's obedience. The servant's call and the servant's obedience. Let's consider the servant's call. We read how Elisha's call is both extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's extraordinary because Elisha's calling was not to be a casual evangelist. He was not to be an he was to be an instrument of judgment upon Israel. It's not that typical pastoral search that we see. No, he had a very specific calling. He would be a sword of judgment in God's hand. And his calling was also extraordinary because he was to be the successor of Elijah. Just as Joshua was to Moses, Elisha would be to Elijah. There's a special prophetic succession happening here. It's hard enough to feel in the shoes of another pastor, but Elisha would have to succeed one of the greatest prophets of all times, the prophet Elijah. But on the other hand, his calling was also ordinary in many senses. First, Elisha's call serve as an illustration of what God has the right to do. It's ordinary because every calling is in the same way. God has the authority to command, and we have the duty to obey. He is free to command. Is his right? He's entitled to command, and we have the duty, the obligation to obey. Every calling has two sides. 
God commands, and we obey every calling, even the calling of the great prophet Elijah and Elisha, and the calling for you and me to be servants of him. He calls, and we obey. Second, Elisha's calling displays God's sovereignty. Elisha's call appears to be almost rash or unplanned. So quickly. It happens so quickly. We never heard of Elisha before. And then in the next moment, he's being anointed to be the successor of Elijah. How in every calling, it's the same way. God has decided everything way before we are communicated. God gave Elisha's, the prophecy of Elisha's destiny way before Elisha heard about it. God didn't ask for his opinion. Elijah cast the mantle upon Elisha without asking what he thought about this. God is sovereign to move as he wills. And as a servant, our duty is to do the master's will, what he wills. He commands, and we obey. It is his right to command and our duty to obey. It doesn't matter the calling. It doesn't matter when and how. It's our duty. And as a good servant, that's what Elisha does. Our second sub-point, the servant's obedience. What is then Elisha's response? Verse 20. Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow thee. He's not showing unwillingness to comply to God's request, to God's call. On the contrary, he's answering without questioning, I'll go. I'll do this. I'll do what you are asking for, Lord. I will follow thee. And even clearer than that is what he does in verse 21. And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen. And he slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people. And they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah and ministered unto him. Elisha used the oxen's equipment as his firewood. For offering a sacrifice. And the ox as a sacrifice unto the Lord. Not because there were no, no other options around him. But because he knew there was no coming back. There was no turning back after this. It was a sign that he gave up everything. Everything that was living before his previous calling to obey God's calling. In Luke chapter 9, if you remember, we have a very similar story. Jesus is giving a calling to his disciples to follow him, to serve him. And one of them wants to go back and bury his father first. Which sounds very legit, right? He wants to bury his father. But Jesus gives the famous and harshly rebuke saying, verse 60 of Luke 9. Let the dead bury their dead. So what's the difference between the disciple in Luke 9 and Elisha here? The disciple wants to bury 
his father to delay his calling, to postpone his calling. But Elisha wants to kiss goodbye to his mother and father because he knows there is no coming back. As a sign that he is willing to fulfill God's calling, that he will do it. He's cutting loose all past relationships and submitting to God's calling. It is after this rebuke that Jesus gives the conclusion to call his disciples to follow him. Luke 9, 62. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow, and looking back, is fitting for the kingdom of God. There is no turning back. There is no turning back. We will only be dismissed of our post when we die. When we go from this life to the other. There's no turning back. It's a race that we run. It's a fight that we fight. It's a combat that we're fighting. And there is no turning back. No one who turns back is fitting for the kingdom of God. In this life, we will never, ever let our weapons aside, even for a moment. Remember, this is an ordinary calling in so many sense. We are calling to be servants, to fight the fight, to run the race, to persevere. There's no turning back. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't easy for Elisha. And it isn't easy for anybody. For some, leaving possessions behind is a challenge. Elisha probably had possessions. We read of a farm and equipment and animals. He probably had possessions. But that wasn't a challenge for him. That didn't matter for him. For others, it is giving up routine and what they are familiar with. The life that they lived before, the calling that they had before, whatever they were used to do before. And for others, it is simply kissing goodbye to their mom and dad. And I can tell that sometimes the hardest thing you can do, simply kissing goodbye to your parents. It's not abandoning your previous calling. Sometimes it's simply a kiss of goodbye. Elisha was a farmer, perhaps a man with possessions, but certainly not a prophet. And just as the disciples dropped their nets and followed Jesus, Elisha did the same way. Fishers of men, sowers of the word of God. Perhaps you are here thinking, Oh, I'm glad the Lord didn't call me to be a prophet, or I would be in deep trouble. I'm so glad he didn't call me to be a prophet. He's calling all of us to be servants. All of us. All of us to be servants. And to obey his calling. Yes, his calling comes in different ways. To serve in different fronts in the battle. In the battlefield. But he's calling us to obey Elisha and the apostles were ready to leave everything behind and follow Christ. What about us? 
What is the cost to follow Christ? To obey Him no matter the cost. To leave our past lives behind and obey Him. Perhaps our job or relationships. But doesn't matter the cost. He's calling us. He's commanding us as servants to obey. It's easy to look to a prophet like Elijah and think he was a superhero. Unstoppable, made with steel. Superpowers. But here he met our super prophet Elijah at the lowest point of his ministry. But he's still holding fast to his God. Never meet your heroes, they said. You are always going to be disappointed. I would say that it that only depends on who your heroes are. James chapter 5 verse 17 says that Elias, that is Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are. The truth is that even the great Elijah was a man as we are. Subject to the same struggles that we go through. And he needed the help and encouragement from the Lord. The same help and encouragement that we need in our afflictions and in our struggles. God does not write impossible decrees. Nor gives too heavy a burden for us to carry. Because the hand that calls... Is the hand that executes the calling. The same God who commissions is the God who enables us to fulfill His commission, to accomplish His calling. If our super prophet Elijah needed God's encouragement, how much more don't we need? None of us are men of steel, and we need God to pick us up. And strengthen us throughout our journey. Throughout our pilgrimage in the desert. We need God to strengthen us. To carry us even throughout this. A true hero is one who comes not only to help, but to save. One who doesn't need our help, for we could give none. One who is willing to leave everything behind just to save one who calls for help, who calls for him. And I hope that if you are here today, you know, you know who fits these characteristics. I hope that if you're here today, you know very well who is the only one who fits perfectly all these characteristics. What good news for us. That God hears as we cry under the tree. And He is there to pick us up. To answer to our cries as we need Him. And accordingly to what we need. What good news is that although we are not superheroes. We have a super Savior. Who succeeds where we fail. Who has succeeded in all areas where we fail. 
who understands our afflictions and who is there to help us when we cry for help. A Savior, Savior who came down from heaven to save us and who even was willing to die in our place to save us, to pay the greatest cost to save our lives from the greatest need that we had. What a Savior we have that was willing to leave everything aside to die for us, to pay the price in our place. Jesus Christ is there. He knows our afflictions, all of them. He knows them very well. And He is able, only Him is able. And He is willing to help. So cry for Him. Cry for Him. Cry for your God. Cry for Jesus Christ, for His help. And you will be surprised how the Lord never abandons His servants. Cry for Him. For the Lord hears your cry. And He is there to help His servants. Amen. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. All our almighty and all merciful God. Oh Lord, we cry to thee, confessing, Lord, that we are finite creatures with so many flaws, so many sins, and that we could never accomplish the calling that thou hast given to us. to die for our sins and to live to Christ. But, O Lord, we give thanks to Thee that Thou hast provided, that Thou enables us to do this through Jesus Christ, through His righteousness that is imputed in us, and through the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live for Thee and to fight for Thee. And, oh, Lord, we pray. We pray, Lord, for the welfare of Thy church. Lord, revive Thy church. Let Thy church be known, Lord, once again as a church that carries Thy word, that preaches Thy gospel, that preaches a kingdom that is to come not in this earth, but in the world to come, that preached Jesus Christ and Him crucified, that preached that all will stand before Thy throne to give an account of our lives, Lord, that is not ashamed of the gospel. And, O Lord, we pray that Thou would make us faithful and compelling servants in thy house, fishers of men, sowers of the word of God. So, O oh Lord, we give thanks that thou not only calls us, but thou enable us to fulfill this calling. 
And we pray, Lord, this in the most holy and gracious name, the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.